0: It is good to be with you. It is good to worship the Lord together as His people. And it is good to have the Richardson family with us this morning. We are glad you guys are here with us. It is good to hear about the work that is being done in Eagle River. And what a joy! What a joy and a privilege it is to partner with others for the sake of the gospel. What a joy to participate in the work that the Lord is doing here in our church family, in our community but also around the world. It is a good reminder that the Lord is at work drawing people to himself, establishing churches, advancing the gospel all over. And we have the wonderful joy and privilege of participating in that in some small way. Well, we are continuing our sermon series called Together. And our sermon series is based on our church's member covenant. Now that might sound unusual, that might seem odd, that might seem like an odd basis for a sermon series, but we have this member covenant that any person who wants to become a member must read over and sign, but we understand that it is easy for any of us to forget the particulars of the covenant not long after we have signed it. And because our covenant is based on biblical commands regarding how we are to live together as the church, we do not want our member covenant to be something we rarely ever reflect on. And one of the ways we seek to keep it in front of us is by reading it out loud together at the beginning of each member meeting. But we wanted to go even further than that by expounding on our covenant in a sermon series whereby we unpack the meaning and purpose of each line in our covenant. We hope that through this series, we will not only gain a better understanding of our covenant, but also become increasingly convinced that the Christian life is meant to be lived in the context of the church. As Pastor Nate said in a conversation earlier this week, we are saved out of individualism and into this wonderful biblical community. And with that in mind, here is the part of the covenant we are covering today. It reads, We will work together for a faithful gospel ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I first read this part of the covenant in preparation for this sermon, I thought, How in the world am I going to preach a sermon on this one line in light of how much is contained in this single sentence? I was having difficulty wrapping my mind around how I would go about doing this. I was helped greatly in my conversation this week with Sam and Nate as we wrestled with what's the significance of this? Why do we have this in our covenant? And one of the things or one of the ways we might be able to summarize this part of the covenant is that we are called to work together for the purity and the faithfulness of the church. And what I would like to do is demonstrate how the elements referenced in this line of our covenant are essential for guarding the purity and faithfulness of our church. For the sake of time, I want to briefly speak to ministry, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine, and then spend a little more time on worship. Now, in trying to cover all these different things in a brief period of time, in a single sermon— it might be the case that this will be the worst sermon in this sermon series. So I'm just asking you to lower your expectations and maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised if there's something profitable for you. So first I'll speak to ministry. The covenant states that we must work together for a faithful gospel ministry. And the reason we put this in our covenant because there is a way to conduct ministry that is faithless. And Jesus warned us of such a problem. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, not we, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, this is a terrifying passage. There are those who will be deceived into thinking that they are doing works in the name of Jesus. Doing all these mighty deeds. And yet Jesus said it is possible for people to do these mighty deeds, these acts of ministry in the name of Jesus without actually knowing Jesus. Without actually glorifying Jesus. There is a way to conduct ministry that is faithless. As we carry out the ministry, we need to make sure that our work is rooted in our union with Jesus. In John 15, Jesus said, we must abide in him as we can bear no good fruit apart from him. Our ministry begins With abiding in Jesus, knowing Jesus, drawing near to Jesus, sitting at the feet of Jesus. It begins with a desire to glorify Him. Because apart from Him, anything that we do is completely and utterly worthless. It is of no value. We can do things that look good that others might commend us for, but that Jesus is not pleased with. And so we go about carrying out the work of the ministry, first and foremost, by abiding in him, drawing near to him, loving him, and seeking to glorify him. In 1 Peter 1, verses 22 through 23, we read, having Purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. These words guide and direct us in regard to carrying out faithful ministry. We must be born. Again, through the living and abiding word of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we must be purified by Christ. And as our hearts are purified, we are able to have sincere brotherly love. We are able to love one another from a pure heart. And this is the basis for our ministry. Our ministry begins one to another. We must do so with a pure heart. We must work together to faithfully Carry out the work of the ministry. Regarding ordinances, the church is given the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And if we neglect the ordinances or conduct them carelessly, we compromise the purity of the church. Jesus commanded us to practice baptism in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, which we refer to as the Great Commission. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So after his death and resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus met with his disciples and gave them this commission, this great commission. And this work that he gave to them to carry out, we believe is the work that he gave ultimately to the church. This was not merely for those 12 men, but it was for the church all over the world, throughout every generation, This work of making disciples, which of course involves the work of evangelism, so that people might come to faith in Christ and be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so they may be taught to observe what Christ has commanded. This is the mission of our church. We do not have to create our own mission statement. Jesus is the one who gives it to us. We must simply follow the directions that he gives us. And as we seek to fulfill the work that he has given given to us, as we seek to do the work of the Great Commission, we see that baptism is central to our mission as a church. As people come to faith in Christ, we baptize them into the life of the church. And baptism is a wonderful Ordinance whereby a believer identifies him or herself with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And this is why we practice baptism by immersion, meaning when we baptize someone, we baptize them so that they go all the way under the water and then come up out of the water. And we believe this is a way that we identify with Jesus in his death by going under the water, but not for too long. And then we identify with his resurrection by coming up out of the water. We demonstrate through baptism that Jesus has saved us, that we belong to him, that we identify with him in his death and resurrection, that our old self has been put to death, and that he has given new life. He has given us new life, and now we get to participate in the new life that he has given us. If you are not a Christian, we are glad you're here. You are always welcome here. And our hope and desire is that when you gather with us, you will hear the gospel, you will hear the good news about Jesus Christ to which baptism points. Our greatest hope, our greatest prayer, our greatest desire for you was will that be that you know that God made you in His image to know Him, to love Him, to glorify Him. But sadly, you have sinned against Him, as we all have. We are a room full of sinners who have rebelled against the one true and living God, and because we have sinned against him, we deserve judgment. If God were to give us what we deserve, we would all spend eternity in hell apart from him. But God, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his love toward dirty, rotten sinners like you and me, has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to him, and enjoy the gift of eternal life, And he has done so at great cost to himself. He has done so by providing Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, as a sacrifice who died upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place so that we can be forgiven of our sins. And he rose from the grave conquering death, proving that he is the Messiah and demonstrating that he can give us the gift of eternal life. He ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the good news is that everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ will be saved. You will be reconciled to God the Father, your creator. You will enjoy the gift of eternal life. You do not have to fear the final judgment. When you trust in Christ, you are his. You belong to him. And so if you are not a Christian, our hope and our prayer and our desire for you is that you will believe in Christ and be saved saved and we would love the joy of baptizing you someday well we also practice the ordinance of communion and we do so because the lord commands us to in first corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 29 paul wrote for i received from the lord what i also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So during our gatherings on the Lord's day, we walk in obedience to the commands in Scripture by practicing or taking the Lord's Supper, taking communion. And we do so after the sermon. We do so by taking the bread and taking the juice or the wine, and, and we do this to remember what Christ has done for us. We do this to remember that on the cross, his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. It is a wonderful part of our worship together, taking the Lord's Supper, remembering what he has done for us. And when we take communion, we always exhort everyone to examine their heart first, And the reason being is we want to take communion in a way that glorifies God. We want to not take communion in a way that in an unworthy manner. And so we always exhort the congregation to examine yourself first, to determine if there's any unrepentant sin in your life, to see if you are out of unity with a brother or sister in Christ that you might... Pursue reconciliation and unity before taking communion. This is one way we seek to guard the purity of the church. Together, we carry out the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, but we try to do so from a pure heart. Communion is not for those who are not sinners. Communion is for sinners like you and me. Nonetheless, we want to ensure that we as sinners are examining our hearts so as not to take communion in an unworthy manner as the Scripture commands. And so, together, we work to guard the purity of the church by taking communion and by doing so with a right heart and a right attitude. Church discipline is yet another important means of guarding the purity of the church. And when we speak of church discipline, we are referring to the instructions Jesus gave regarding how the church is to address unrepentant sinners. And so in this passage, Jesus provides this progression for how to address someone who is in sin. Begins with one person going to the person in sin and calling them to repentance. If the person is unwilling to listen, then two or three are to go, more than one. A plurality of people are meant to go and to call this person to repentance for their sin. If the person is still unwilling to repent of their sin, then Jesus says, tell it to the church. Get the church involved in calling this person to Repentance. The person that is unwilling to repent, they must be removed from the church. Similarly, Paul urged the church in Corinth to practice church discipline with the unrepentant. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1-13, through he wrote, "...it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant." "'Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, "'as you really are unleavened. "'For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. "'Let us therefore celebrate the festival, "'not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, "'but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. "'I wrote to you in my letter not to associate "'with sexually immoral people, "'not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world "'or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, "'since then you would need to go out of the world.'" One of the things to keep in mind as we reflect on these scriptures here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is that Paul was writing to the entire congregation in Corinth. This letter was not directed exclusively to the leaders in Corinth. In other words, he was telling the congregation in Corinth how to address an unrepentant sinner in their midst. And he was calling on them To remove an unrepentant sinner from the church, if necessary. Now, in doing so, he differentiated between judging people outside the church and judging people inside the church. He said, what do I have to do with judging people outside the church? God is going to judge them. Then he tells them, you need to judge those inside the church. Now, that might be a little bit surprising because we all know that we should not be judgmental. We all know that we should not be condescending. We know that we need to guard ourselves against such things. But while we must not be judgmental, while we must not be condescending, we must make right judgments. And Paul is calling on them to make right judgments. Sometimes I think we get this backwards in the church. Sometimes we're reluctant to judge those inside and we're eager to judge those outside. Paul is saying, Deal with matters inside this house, inside this family. Purge the evil from among you. The church was called upon to carry out the work of church discipline. Now the subject of church discipline may be uncomfortable for some and understandably so. One of the things we say in our membership class is the exercise of church discipline has often been unbiblical and poorly exercised. In response, many churches wrongly abandon this practice in an effort to gain the approval of men. Practice of church discipline can be done wrong, and it has been done wrong. And sadly, many people have been wounded because of that. In some churches, it has been carried out punitively or uncharitably or hastily. That is one ditch. The other ditch is to say, well, because it's a bad thing, because it's been done wrong, we're not going to do it at all. But a reluctance... To do church discipline is a denial of the commands of Jesus. It's an unwillingness to obey the commands of Christ and what we see here in 1 Corinthians 5. And so we don't want to fall into the ditch of carrying out church discipline in a way that is wrong. And we don't want to fall in the ditch of not doing church discipline at all. What we see in Scripture is that the goal is to win over a brother or sister who is walking in unrepentant sin to the detriment of their own soul. The motivation for church discipline is love. In our membership material, we also explain church discipline is ultimately to show love to the sinner. And we say church discipline is necessary to protect the other members of the church from falling into the same sin. First of all, It is an act of love whereby the church is seeking to call an unrepentant person to repentance for the good of their own soul. It is an act of love because we know that if someone is walking in unrepentant sin, it is not good for them. If we see someone driving towards a cliff, we don't stand back and say, Oh, well, who am I to intervene? Who am I to say anything? we see someone driving towards a cliff, the loving thing to do is to say, stop, stop. And if we have to yank him out of a car, we'll yank him out of a car. If we see our, a young child running towards a busy road, we're not going to step back and say, well, I don't know if I should say anything. I don't want to be mean. I don't want to be overbearing. We grab that child. We pull them back. Church discipline is a means of us trying to pull people back from heading towards death and destruction. And so it is an act of love to the sinner. And it's also for the sake of the other members, or more broadly, the purity of the church. There's a way that we take sin seriously within our own body. We're not judgmental or condescending towards someone who might be in a path towards church discipline because we know that we are all sinners, and that would be us if not for the grace of God. And so it is a way that we guard the purity of the church by taking sin seriously. It serves as a warning to the rest of us. So we work together to practice church discipline motivated by love to guard the purity of individual believers and the purity of the church. In this part of our covenant, we also speak to sustaining our doctrine. Maintaining sound doctrine is also essential to guarding the purity of the church. And when we speak of sound doctrine, we are referring to true teaching. We're referring to true biblical teaching that is good and right, that is from the Lord, which we find in Scripture. In 2 John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we read, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Do you see what is at stake here? Sound doctrine is not incidental to who we are as Christians and who we are as the church. If we don't abide in the teaching of Christ, we don't have God. And Jesus said all of scripture ultimately points to him so we cannot divorce the teaching of Jesus in the gospels from the rest of scripture. We must believe the truth of the gospel as God has revealed it to us in his word. And moreover, we cannot pick and choose the parts of scripture we like or don't like. We don't get to sit in the seat of judgment to decide what parts of scripture are good and what parts we're going to follow and which parts are bad and we can ignore We have a high view of God's word. We place great importance on sound doctrine, not so that we can just simply be right. It's so that we can have God. Apart from sound teaching, the teaching of Christ, we cannot have fellowship with God. Now in Revelation chapter 2, We also see that it's possible to have sound doctrine but not love God. The church in Ephesus was commended because they rejected false apostles. And thus they rejected false teaching. But Jesus critiqued them because they lost the love they had at first. And so it's possible to have sound doctrine but to have a loveless faith. Well, one of the ways we guard the teaching of the church is through our statement of faith. We don't have a statement of faith simply so we can check off the box and say, okay, we got our statement of faith. Our statement of faith is actually very important in the life of our church. We have every person who becomes a member read through it and make sure that they agree and they affirm it. Our statement of faith is a succinct way of capturing the essential teachings of Scripture. It helps us to evaluate what is good and right doctrine. It helps to shape our worldview according to the Bible. It also serves as a tool in the hands of the members to ensure that what is being taught comes from the word of God. Another way we guard the teaching of the church is by voting on elders. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul rebuked the congregation for their tolerance of false teacher, whose teaching undercut the truth of the gospel. False teachers had come into Galatia And they were teaching a false gospel. And Paul rebuked the congregation in Galatia for tolerating them. He placed the responsibility not exclusively on the leaders, but on the entire congregation. What that means is that the congregation as a whole has a responsibility for the teaching of the church. And so the scriptures do not prescribe congregations voting on elders but we believe that it is a wise way that we can give and enable the congregation to exercise the responsibility that is given to the congregation in Scripture. So when voting on elders, the congregation should vote on those who teach sound doctrine, who preach the gospel faithfully, and should reject anyone who preaches a false gospel or fails to uphold sound doctrine. Through our consideration of these elements, I hope that we are, what we are seeing is that, one, we are given commands and instructions that we are to carry out together as a church, and two, that it is possible to do the right actions with the wrong motivation. And with those two ideas in mind, I want to turn our attention to the subject of worship. And part of the impetus for addressing worship in the covenant is that there is such a thing as false worship. The possibility of false worship is something we, should all, we would all be wise to be aware of. When we talk about worship, we mean rightly ascribing value, worth, and glory to the Lord. We mean loving, desiring, treasuring, and delighting in the Lord more than anyone or anything else in the world. As followers of Jesus, we want to be true worshipers of the one true and living God. And as members of this church, we want our church to be full of true worshipers of the one true and living God. In order to pursue being true worshipers, it is helpful to understand the difference between true and false worship. The Bible provides us with contrasting pictures of true worship and false worship. During the 8th century BC, the Lord called a shepherd named Amos to be a prophet To his people Israel. Amos was sent by the Lord to speak words of judgment against the people of Israel during a period of relative stability and prosperity. But sadly, it was also a time of idolatry, corruption, and injustice. Thus, Amos was sent to confront the Israelites for their apostasy. And I want to read for you Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. Here's what the Lord spoke through the prophet Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos began, began this oracle by declaring, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. And the people of Israel were conducting their worship services and celebrating the coming of the day of the Lord as if the day of the Lord would go well for them. In the mind of the Israelites, the idea of the day of the Lord was associated with judgment for Israel's enemies. They looked back at times when God defeated their enemies, such as the time that David defeated the Philistines, and they anticipated that that would happen again. So when they celebrated the day of the Lord, they envisioned judgment for their enemies and salvation for themselves. And while the day of the Lord is indeed associated with judgment and salvation, the Israelites in the days of Amos were sadly mistaken regarding what side of that equation they were on. Amos explained that you look forward to the day of the Lord, but it's not going to go well for you. For you, it's not lightness, it's darkness. The day of the Lord will be judgment for you. And to push the point further, the Lord said that he took no delight in their public acts of worship. And in doing so, he referred to your feasts, your solemn assemblies, your burnt offerings, and your songs. It says, if he was saying your religious deeds and public acts of worship are about you, they're not about me. Your worship services Are about you. That was the message for the people of Israel. Their worship was not about the Lord because their hearts were far from Him. And the evidence that their hearts were far from Him was that they did not value the right things that are important to the Lord. They failed to practice justice and they failed to pursue righteousness. The things that are near and dear to the heart of our Lord, the very things that He had commanded them to do. They failed to practice justice. They failed to pursue righteousness. Imagine a boss of a company, CEO of a company, who outlines the values of the company. These are important to me. These values are important to me. And moreover, he gave specific instructions to his employees. And now I remember an employee who clearly disregarded the values established by the, po- the boss. And moreover, blatantly disobeyed the instructions of the boss. imagine the boss calling him in for a conversation to confront him and him saying, like, you're a great boss. I think you're the best. You're great. I respect you. That boss is not going to hear that. He's not going to listen to it. He's going to say, your words are meaningless. You don't value the things I value. You don't follow my instructions or my commands. That employee is going to get fired. Empty praise. Meaningless. Similarly, during their public worship services, the Israelites were praising the one whose values they did not share and whose instructions they did not follow. Thus, the Israelites worshiped the Lord in vain because their worship was false worship. Their hearts were not right with the Lord. Imagine that. They're gathering together, they're assembling together, they're singing God's praises, they're presenting offerings to the Lord. Seemingly, they're doing all the right things. But the Lord says, I hate it. I despise it. Brothers and sisters, the words that the Lord spoke to Israel through Amos serve as a sober warning to us. So how do we guard against false worship? Well, in John chapter 4, we read an incredible account of a conversation Jesus had with a woman from Samaria. The beginning of John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples arrive at Samaria. His disciples go to buy food, and he's left there uh, at a well. And a woman comes from Samaria, and Jesus asks her for a drink of water. This was surprising to her because in that culture, in that time, Jews and Samaritans kept their distance. They did not associate with one another. Moreover, it was unusual for a man to even associate with a woman in that kind of way. So she was surprised That Jesus asked her for water. And she said, how can you, would you ask me a Samaritan for water? And then Jesus comes back with, if you knew who was asking, you would ask for living water. And she had no idea what he was talking about. She was very confused. She was asking, well, how can you get this water? You don't have a bucket. I'm not sure if you understand how this works. And Jesus went on to talk about it more. And then she's finally like, okay, can I have this water? So I don't have to keep coming back to this well. She still clearly did not understand the point that Jesus was making. So she's asking Jesus for this living water. And he says, okay, go call your husband and come back. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had a whole number of husbands, and the man you're with now is not even your husband. At this point, she realized she's in deep. She realizes she's talking to someone who she perceives to be a prophet. She's like, okay, he just read my mail. And so what she proceeds to do is engage him in a theological debate. So I'm going to pick up in John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. for The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. When Jesus began, was able to reveal the details about her life, the woman decided to engage Jesus in this theological debate, it might have been a, a diversionary tactic like, okay, it's getting personal. Let's talk about this other thing. Where, do we, where should we worship? Or she might have been genu- genuinely interested. Uh, she might have been genuinely curious as to what this prophet would say. How would he speak to this debate regarding the proper place to worship the Lord? And the Jews and Samaritans had a significant and bitter debate surrounding the proper location of worship. And the reason this dispute came about in the first place was because the people of Israel divided into two kingdoms around 930 BC after the reign of King Solomon. Israel was divided into the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And before the kingdom divided, the the people of Israel worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem, which remained the capital of Judah after the split. One commentator notes, when the division of the kingdom took place, Jeroboam made Shechem the capital of the northern kingdom, discouraged worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and substituted calf worship at Bethel and Dan. He thereby instigated a new and separate religion centering at Shechem and Mount Gerizim. After the king of Assyria resettled northern and central Palestine with pagan peoples, he sent a priest of Israel back to Samaria to teach them the religion of the Jewish remnant. In this way, the worship of God was preserved but also perverted. And so after the split, the people in the northern kingdom established their own place of worship and they based that, the location, Mount Gerizim, off of texts from Deuteronomy which emphasized the significance of that location. And so they believed they were justified in having a place of worship at Mount Gerizim because of what was said about Mount Gerizim in Deuteronomy. So for example, Leon Morris writes, That the woman's reference to our fathers points back to the building of altars in this region by Abraham in Genesis 12 and Jacob in Genesis 33. Mount Gerizim was the scene of blessing of the people when they came into the promised land, Deuteronomy 11 and 27. The Samaritans also read in their Bibles that an an altar was commanded to be set up on this mountain, Deuteronomy 27. All these associations added to the building of the temple on, on this height and made it a place especially holy for the Samaritans. So, the Samaritans believed this was the proper place of worship. After all, look at all these significant holy events. Look at all these things that were commanded about this mountain in the book of Deuteronomy. But the Jews read in Chronicles that David was commanded to build, or uh, Solomon was uh, commanded to build the temple in Jerusalem. And that's where the place was to be, the one place of God's special dwelling. And so how would Jesus settle this debate? How would he answer this question? Well, he answered her question by explaining to her that she was asking the wrong question. Her categories for proper worship, for the place of proper worship, were outmoded. He explained to her that true worship is not a matter of where, it's a matter of how. He did seem to come down on the side of the Jews by critiquing the Samaritans for worshiping what they did not know. The Jews, on the other hand, did have a special role as God's vehicle of revelation, which does lead to salvation. However, his response pointed to the fact that the Jews' privileged position would be of no value to them if they were not true worshipers. Going to the temple in Jerusalem would not make one a true worshiper. The Father is not seeking worshipers who travel to the right holy site. No, he is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. What did he mean by worship him in spirit and truth? R.C. Sproul, uh, Sproul wrote, He was calling us in the first instance to see that the worship we offer comes from the depths of our souls, from our inner spirits, from the very cores of our being. We're to come to Him with hearts filled with a sense of awe, reverence, and adoration. He went on to say, Also, we are told worship is to be according to truth. We have to keep a close watch on what we do in worship, asking ourselves, Is this according to the truth of God? Is this God's teaching in His Word? Our worship must be based on God's self-revelation in Scripture. He is truth, and his word is truth. So the emphasis there is saying is that worship, when he says spirit and in truth, spirit is referring to our inner being. Worship must come from the heart, and it must be according to the truth that is revealed in God. Now, other commentators will say that when Jesus talked about spirit and truth, he was referring to the Holy Spirit, and he was referring to himself as the embodiment of truth. For example, Bruce Milne says, true and satisfactory worship is worship offered in and through Jesus Christ. Only through the truth he embodies and the spirit he imparts can we know God and worship him. I think both of these things are clearly true in Scripture. Which did Jesus have as his focal point? I don't know. But both things are true. Worship must come from the heart. Worship must be according to the revealed truth of God. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to truly worship him, and we must worship Jesus Christ, the embodiment of that truth. We are called to be true worshipers of the one true and living God. Isaac Watts wrote, The great God values not the service of men, if the heart be not in it. The Lord sees and judges the heart. He has no regard to outward forms of worship. If there be no inward adoration, if no devout affection be employed therein, it is therefore a matter of infinite importance to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly for God. One of the things I pray regularly for my own soul, for my wife, for my children, and for this church family is this Lord, grant it to us to be true worshipers of you who worship you in spirit. And in truth, grant us repentance for the idolatry in our hearts so that we will worship you and you alone. Can I encourage you to pray that prayer for us? I want to encourage you to pray that for the sake of your own soul. Pray that for your family. Pray that for our church family. As we work together to guard the purity and the faithfulness of the church, let's pray that we will be true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Let's pray that the Lord will deliver us from false worship. Let's pray that he will help us to see the idols in our heart that prevent us from being true worshipers of the one true and living God. We all struggle with idolatry of the heart. If you don't think you struggle with this, I'd encourage you to ask the Lord to remove the blinders. We need him to help us to see our idolatry so that we can repent, so that we can be true worshipers, the one true and living God. The Lord has given us good commands that we are to carry out as a church together. But there is a possibility that we can take the right actions with the wrong motivation. It's possible that we can do the right things and have hearts that are far from God. So, brothers and sisters, let us walk in repentance. Let us walk together in repentance. And let us seek to be true worshipers of the one true and living God who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Yes, let us follow the commands we are given. But let, us, let us seek to do so with humble, contrite, joyful, worshipful hearts. May we work together to this end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. Your word is powerful. We thank you for the way that your word is at work in and through us. And we humbly ask that this will continue. We pray that you will grant it to us to walk in repentance, to turn from the idols that so easily creep into our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we will be a people who worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that we would walk in obedience to your commands and we pray that our hearts will be in the right place as we walk in obedience to your commands. Lord, help us to guard the purity and the faithfulness of the church together with humility, with gratitude, and with great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.